On October 9, 2013, former Indiana Senator Richard Luger sat down with an up-and-coming mayor from South Bend named Pete Buttigieg. Their conversation served as the keynote for the first annual Richard M. Fairbanks Symposium on Civic Leadership at the University of Indianapolis. The discussion covers an overview of Luger's entrance into politics, pointers about how to build governing coalitions, Robert Kennedy's April 4, 1968 visit to Indianapolis, as well as a memorable exchange about how much Luger and Buttigieg valued their training in the humanities. Listeners can be reminded of Luger's photographic memory as well as Buttigieg's unique ability to frame issues of leadership. Finally, the two discussed the ways in which executive experience is necessary in politics. In 2019, two events conspired to increase interest in the Luger-Buttigieg conversation. First, Buttigieg became one of many Democrats vying for the 2020 presidential nomination. Second, on April 28th, Senator Luger died at the age of 87. The longest-serving and most distinguished senator in Indiana history, Luger was renowned as an unparalleled statesman. His close relationship with the University of Indianapolis was one of his many lasting legacies. Together with symposium partner Indiana Humanities, the Institute for Civic Leadership and Mayoral Archives is proud to release the entirety of this memorable keynote. The University of Indianapolis is thankful for the support provided by the Richard M. Fairbanks Foundation, the Lilly Endowment, and other individual philanthropic sponsors. If you like this conversation, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast provider. Well, thank you for uh, the opportunity to, to be here. And uh, it's, it's polite, I think, in a situation like this to say that you're humbled when often a politician means they feel the opposite of humble. They feel proud. Um, but, but I'm seriously humbled to find myself in this context. Some similarities were mentioned. Uh, Senator Luger uh, studied at Pembroke College in Oxford. Uh, so did I. Senator Luger was uh, a young mayor, as I am. Uh, he was uh, a naval intelligence officer, as I am. Uh, Senator Luger also more responsible than any other individual through a great diplomatic triumph for the destruction of over 7,000 nuclear weapons uh, from the United States and Russia, um, meaning he's one of the people walking this earth most responsible for uh, having perhaps prevented a nuclear disaster in our time. And I uh, read a book about Russia uh, not long ago. <laughs> All of which is to say that this is very humbling. So in order to try to level the playing field a little bit at the beginning of the conversation, I was hoping I could pull you back to the, <clears throat> to the first days of your administration as a young mayor, um, when there is something that I think we would have had in common, which is that experience of, of coming through the door of the mayor's office the first time, something you've prepared for, uh, uh, for quite a while, you've campaigned for, the voters have trusted you with it, you know exactly where you want to take the city generally, but you've got to figure out how to spend your first moments and, and first days in office. Uh, and I was very interested to know how uh, you saw the challenges shaping up and, and how you prioritized your first uh, few days uh, when you were actually at the helm. Well, Pete, I had the benefit of serving on the school board for three years before the mayor business. That came about because people came to the West Side factory where my brother and I were trying to resurrect the family business and said, Luger, you got to run for the school board. Our kids are just getting dirt and we need somebody to stand up for them. I frankly didn't know where the school board met, quite apart from what they did. Uh, I was flattered by paying any attention. But uh, Char, my wife, felt, uh, had four boys headed to the public schools. It's something you probably ought to do. 
So I ran and found out, because I've been so preoccupied with the factory and the farm, that uh, a civil rights revolution was on the horizon in Indianapolis. I was apparent in that race. Uh, I emerged as one of the seven people in that large situation. Uh, Gertrude Page, an African-American woman, got the most votes. And she became a strong ally uh, as we began to tackle, first of all, uh, breakfasts for latchkey children, for children that had no parents there, and they were, as a matter of fact, sick usually because they got anything to eat before school. Immediately, uh, this is the first thing we tried to do, uh, Chamber of Commerce in Indianapolis at that time said, Luger, you've got to get through your head. We have never taken one dime of federal aid in Indianapolis, and we're not about to start now because of your crazy idea with latchkey children and breakfast and so forth. Uh, by a four to three vote of the board, we did take up the latchkey children and the breakfast. And this is the beginning of one controversy after another, uh, which included uh, trying to begin desegregating the Indianapolis public school system long before the court orders and what have you, the short reach plan we adopted, the ability anybody in, in, the, in the whole city to come to short reach for the freshman year, black, white, or anybody else. Uh, what had been a 90% black population, 10% white, became in that year 50-50, like water going uphill in educational journals, but on the other hand, extremely controversial, as you can imagine. So in the midst of all of this, um, the Republican Party in Indianapolis had come to the conclusion, I suspect, that uh, there had not been a Republican mayor for 20 years, and the prospects demographically were there not going to be for the next 20, for that matter. Uh, Keith Bullen was a brilliant tactician, became county chairman, and um, uh, asked me to run because uh, I suppose I had already become so controversial, uh, there was so much publicity surrounding all of these battles, that uh, he, he thought at least uh, there might be some hope of a breakthrough of this sort, and I'll not go through a whole campaign, but nevertheless, uh, I, I defeated uh, John Barden, a fine gentleman, who was uh, the Democratic mayor, then former state policeman. But uh, before we got to that point, uh, I had already done some homework and found, as I talked to people from other cities in the country, that Indianapolis, along with Detroit and uh, Buffalo and Pittsburgh and St. Louis and so forth, were all headed downhill. And they were going downhill in a hurry, as a matter of fact, uh, simply because uh, well, properties were being abandoned. Uh, there were fewer and fewer jobs. The resources of the community seemed to be diminishing. It was a phenomenon in terms of an urban demise that was uh, difficult. I found in Nashville, Tennessee, and in Jacksonville, Florida, people had uh, envisioned an expansion of the inner city to the suburbs, the different patterns in both cases. But nevertheless, this was intriguing. So uh, uh, we talked about that in the campaign, uh, about a greater Indianapolis, about a flourishing situation going onward and upward. Um, and uh, most people had no idea what in the world we were talking about. Uh, and it was certainly uh, an upset win, I suspect, that we finally made it across the finish line. But having done that, <clears throat> I started out it was a campaign year, then in 1968, following the 67 election. Went to Lincoln days all over the state or to places where I would meet with people who were going to be state representatives or state senators. 
And I don't want to make too much out of this, but in the course of a year of time, I had met with all 100 members of the General Assembly, all 50 state senators, uh, talking about what was going to be called UNIGOV. And the idea was that the civil government of Indianapolis and Marion County would be combined. There would be one mayor, 25 members of the council, all the money on the same table, everybody around the same table, with, with various districts almost guaranteeing there would be black representatives as well as white ones. Um, and uh, this, to say the least, uh, consumed the entire year uh, in terms of the persuasion coming to, up to the legislature, uh, which was a battle and a story all by itself. But in the event, finally we got Governor Whitcomb to sign the bill and got uh, Governor Bowen, who was then Speaker Bowen, uh, to let go of it. Um, I made a, almost a fatal miscue. I became so and, uh, irritated with the the Bowen that I asked all the citizens of Indianapolis to call him on the telephone down at the state house. <clears throat> Many responded to that and jammed the whole state house with all these calls. Uh, but I apologized profusely and tried to get back on the best side of things. In any event, Unigov was passed, but that wasn't the end of it. The Supreme Court of Indiana had to rule. We were involved in that. And ultimately, we had a re-election campaign in 71, in which people said we didn't get a referendum on this. You did it all by the legislature. We are a creature of the state, but nevertheless, uh, we should have had a vote. So that was the vote. There were more votes cast in that election than there have ever been cast again in Indianapolis in a mayoralty election. And we won roughly 60-40, and that settled the issue. But uh, it made all the difference, I would just say, in the life of the city, as immediately all kinds of investment came in. People began to build the buildings they had envisioned for a long time. We began to clear away all the debris in the downtown area so the people had land. We had brilliant people like David Meeker, a brilliant tactician for architecture. And, and, and at the same time, why uh, President uh, Nixon, who had been elected in, in 68, discovered Indianapolis was the largest Republican city. John Lindsay of New York having gone to the Democratic Party. So as a result, his first trip as president with Mrs. Nixon was out here. Now, some may find that's a good idea. Some may find that was dubious. But historically, it was important because uh, Nixon was uh, so excited about the whole business that in the city county building on our way up to the 25th floor, he said, I want you and Mel Moynihan. This is Daniel Patrick Moynihan, then an, an advisor to go to Brussels immediately, represent the United States with, at the Cities of the World Conference. We've got all kinds of problems there. And not uh, lacking audacity about this, I went with Moynihan, and then I invited all the mayors of the world to come to Indianapolis the next year <laughs> for the so-called first international conference on cities. And 50 responded, some from Japan, from Europe, from Latin America, all came out here, revived many of the cultural communities uh, of, uh, who had not really thought of each other as Bosnians or Serbs or what have you for years, but sort of came out of the woodwork. Um, and it made uh, a, a very exciting difference in terms of the international outlook of Indianapolis then, as we all began to think about exporting and, and trying to bring together that kind of business. Um, I was elected president of the National League of Cities. And this led to a whole host of other experiences, which we'll not go into in great detail. But finally, uh, to the, the, the battle uh, for revenue sharing. 
this was the first time, at least in the, during the Nixon period, that the federal government balanced the budget. There was actually a surplus for one year, and the Congress passed a revenue sharing plan. And uh, I, I mentioned that because I had my heart set on the Market Square Arena, uh, and I needed a way to pay for it. And so the revenue sharing money was the way to pay for it. Uh, the federal government paid for it so that we did not have a taxpayer expense at that particular stage. The Pacers were saved, otherwise would have gone somewhere else if we couldn't provide that kind of thing. And $20.5 million worth of investment by businesses were pledged for all the buildings around us and the development and so forth. So the property tax base rose again and I was able to reduce property taxes five years out of the eight that I was mayor, largely due to this expansion and excitement. So in a nutshell, I, this is why I enjoyed being mayor. It was an exciting time. <laughs> well, there's, there's one thing in particular, there's so much in that, in that story, but one in particular I wanted to unpack a little bit, and that's the idea of, of how you, you try to build a, a consensus or or influence people to do something. You mentioned that uh, you're, you're elected as a local figure, but in order to get anything done with UNIGOV, you need the entire state legislature yes. to back you. And, and one of the first things I realized as, as mayor, first of all, you come in as chief executive of a, uh, an organization of, in our case, a, a smaller city than Indianapolis, but a thousand, a thousand or so employees. Uh, most of them, some of them don't mind telling you they got underwear older than you, and, uh, and you're supposed to tell them all what to do. Uh, and uh, so it's challenging enough within your own organization uh, and all the people who report to you to try to get everybody on the same page and get them aligned around the same goals. Uh, but I very quickly figured out that most of the work in this job was going to involve uh, getting people to do things that you don't have any authority over them, starting with your own council, who of course uh, won't mind reminding you uh, that they're the legislature and, and, uh, and they don't report to anybody but the voters. Um, and even more so if you're trying to do anything uh, uh, very ambitious. One, one of our biggest efforts right now has to do with a, uh, a group violence reduction strategy. We're trying to take uh, a more evidence-based approach to how we deal with, uh, with gang violence. We used to call it gang violence, and then people said, well, we don't have gangs in this part of town. And I said, well, what do you have? He said, well, we have little neighborhood groups. So, so now we're calling it the, the group violence reduction strategy. But, but one of the the biggest elements of, of getting anything done was, was you got to have everybody at the table. Uh, that's the federal prosecutor, the county sheriff, the county prosecutor, uh, probate court stuff. That's just the law enforcement side. You got to have schools there, you got to have parks, you got to have social services. Pretty soon I figure out of the 40 people on my commission, only about two of them actually report to me. Um, and if it doesn't operate on a handshake, it doesn't operate. Uh, so uh, I was interested to know whether through the lens of the UNIGOV experience or maybe further on in the Senate, where of course you got a, a hundred people each with their own, uh, their own approach, how you go about getting somebody to do something uh, when they certainly don't have to. You talk to them, <laughs> uh, listen more than you talk uh, and find out really where their interests are. But I think likewise, you need to have some ideas not just a question of interviewing people and sort of counting heads. Um, in the UNIGOV experience, we had an idea, and it was not an idea that was shared by everybody. As a matter of fact, uh, many of my public meetings here in Indianapolis at that time were with people, particularly in the suburbs, who um, even would, would quote biblical scripture as to why this was a dreadful idea. Um, 
But at the same time, we managed, this is the time we talk about civility, uh, uh, to make sure that we didn't get into a temper tantrum with anybody. We sort of listened to everybody, even quoting the Bible as opposed to Unigov. And uh, we also uh, had to make compromises. I think the panel this morning made a very good point that uh, the public school system did not come into Unigov. That was uh, a situation in which the, the school corporations simply indicated from the outset that they had the votes in the legislature to stop any such nonsense of that sort, if we thought about it. Uh, and so we did not get the schools involved. And we had a police and fire department situation that was sort of fractured for a long while. Did much better with sewers and water mains and other developments as people in the county really wanted more services of that sort. But lots of compromises along the way, even while we were celebrating the glory of one mayor, one council, one Unigov. Um, and, and at the same time, the campaign of 71 that I mentioned was, I, I felt, a very civil campaign. But my opponent, the Democrat, on this occasion, uh, cited the fact that we were going to return to neighborhoods. This idea of this vast city and all this encompassing business uh, was very, not, not really Hoosier, and uh, we were going to be back to the neighborhoods and all. So all sorts of signs went up sort of indicating that type of thing. And that, that a lot of people believed. But um, I think also underlying a, a lot of this was uh, the problem we were working our way through relationships with African Americans and whites in this city. Um, it was a case really around the country as people observed this. And, and they said, well, two things have been done. These are the cynics who criticize it all. Said, first of all, uh, Luger and Buellen and whoever else allied with them have uh, put the Republicans back in charge. That was the whole purpose of this thing. If demographically the Republicans are never going to win again, uh, if you expand the electorate, why, good chance that they might. And they continued to for many years until Mayor Peterson. Uh, I would just simply say that uh, that was very suspicious on the part of many people. Likewise, uh, there was the feeling on the part of some civil rights crusaders, these were the more extreme ones. But uh, they took the position that demographically, Indianapolis, along with a lot of other cities, are going to be ours in just a few years of time. Uh, we're, we're going to elect uh, the, the public officials, and we're going to do so with a pretty strong racial bias of that sort. So how dare you really take the, the plate off the table before we get our chance at it? And uh, a lot of people wrote a good number of educational doctrines and other papers about all of this for a while that uh, somehow there had been frustration of the black minority, uh, not only by Republicans, but by simply the structure of this situation. But I, I would just say, uh, ultimately, um, the proof of it was in the pudding that we, the, the tax base rose so rapidly, the, the tax cuts likewise, the facilities sort of coming all around. And I would, I would just you know, inquire of you, Pete, because I know this has been a part of your mission here, but um, in the old days, and Bill would have faced a different problem, but uh, I could go into neighborhoods and I could see all these houses that have been abandoned 
and just ramshackle messes and so forth, and uh, order whatever department I had there really to clean the whole thing off. Now, uh, I, I found in later days that probably there were some legal problems <laughs> in uh, uh, being so swift. Yeah, that sounds kind of nice. Yeah, so, sort of clean up. But in the old days, in quotes and so forth, well, we just went block by block. I would go out uh, sort of on a cruise and say, let's take care of this block today and this one. So that uh, eventually we, we had then the real estate on which to rebuild and which to take care of things. Plus, we didn't have all the abandoned property, the mess that was generally there. Um, and, I, and I just didn't want to inquire of you uh, as you took a look at South Bend, because I, I know you have been attempting to tear down a lot of old houses right. and so forth. What, what was the legal situation you faced and or really what the public relations situation? It, it's, uh, it's amazing to hear the, the, uh, the matches between some of what I faced and some of what you came into. You know, South Bend is a city that outside of, of our area we're best known for Notre Dame. Uh, but we didn't grow up around education. We grew up around industry. Uh, back when the big three automakers were the big four automakers, number four was Studebaker, and it was right in South Bend. So in many ways, we have the attributes of a company town that, that lost its company. And uh, we didn't go all the way down the tubes because of leadership and, and also because of the universities that we did have. But the legacy of that is that we went from having 130,000 people to having 100. And we simply have more houses than people and we simply have too many houses. Now, I love saving houses whenever possible. My own home is a vacant and abandoned house that I've been fixing up, my little money pit on the river uh, in South Bend. But it was clear that we weren't going to be able to preserve all of them. Uh, and so we found two categories, as you pointed out, of, of obstacles. Probably the bigger one is the public relations uh, issue. And people, if you let them, will tend to divide along whatever fractures there are, whether it's uh, economic, political, racial, um, and, and will often view uh, you know, fast-talking politicians with big ideas through that lens. Right? So if I come in, as I did, and said, look, this city needs to tackle a thousand houses in a thousand days, or we're not going to be able to reverse the tide uh, of blight in our neighborhoods, a lot of folks are asking, well, does that mean that you're attacking my neighborhood? Now, what we found as we started listening more closely was that that was what we were hearing from the politicians from those neighborhoods. What we were hearing from the neighbors from those neighborhoods was, where have you been the last 10, 20 years? Because what they often weren't aware of is that uh, these vacant and abandoned properties, they didn't belong to us. Even if I go tear them down, I still don't own it. At best, uh, we can clear it out under the unsafe building law if the building can't be saved, but it belongs to the bank or, or the county or the original owner. Sometimes the original owner doesn't even know that they still own it because of a pretty nefarious practice, in my view, where a bank will kick the family out but take a couple of years to actually foreclose so that the taxes and the liens and that sort of thing go to the family and not to the bank, uh, something that, that ought to get a look uh, from a state or federal <laughs> policy perspective. But anyway, uh, even when we clear the house out, we don't necessarily own it. But until we do, a neighbor who lives across the street or next door to one of those houses views the condition of that house as a direct barometer of how much the city cares about them. Right? Never mind that I don't want that house there either. To them, it's a symbol. It tells them whether or not we care. And what we've tried to do is make sure there are as many ways as possible for the voice of the neighborhood to be driving our decisions. We literally don't have enough dollars to clear the houses that we need to clear. So we've got to do it in some kind of order. 
So how do you decide what to do first? Well, one of the things we did was we brought in a, a team from an outfit called Code for America. If you've ever heard of Teach for America, uh, this is a, a similar idea, but, but it's for IT people. They call it the, the Peace Corps for Geeks. Uh, and every year they pick 10 cities, and their job is, is to craft some kind of application, uh, web-based app that will help with city issues. And I pointed out to them that we have a lot of seniors and a lot of low-income folks, and whatever they come up with should be a technology that's useful to people, even if they don't understand how to use the web. What they created was a platform that, uh, to, to make a long story short, they stick a yard sign in the yard of a vacant and abandoned house. And it's got a number you can call. Mm -hmm. And when you call that number, you can leave a message about how you feel about that house, whether you think it ought to be torn down in a hurry, whether you think we ought to not tear it down because there's a chance to save it, or whether you're willing to do something about it. And that registers, and you actually go to our website, southbendvoices.com. You can hear it. You can click on a property, and you can see and hear all these voices of people, some of whom are seniors who've never used a mouse in their lives. But, um, but because it's phone-based, it's web-based to me, but it's phone-based to them. And it draws in the neighborhoods because you have to make it clear that what you're doing is not something you're doing to the neighborhood, but it's something you're doing with the neighborhood and for the neighborhood. And if we can establish that, then I think we'll be on the right path and people will begin to take it as a confidence builder when we're able to address the houses. Save the ones we can, clear out the ones we can't. Um, and, and the other important thing, of course, is that a, a vacant lot isn't that much better than a vacant house. So trying to have a community-based approach to what that lot's going to be, uh, even if the best you can do is have it be a veggie garden for a while or put in wildflowers like they do in the medians of the highways in Indiana because you don't have to mow them, uh, they smell good, uh, they look pretty good, and uh, they actually help uh, uh, suck up some of the rainwater from the ground. They take pressure off the sewer system. Uh, so we have to get creative uh, because the problem is too big to solve overnight. But step one is making sure that everybody understands that those properties aren't there because the city wants them there. Mm -hmm. And I think getting that uh, across is a real challenge. And I'm sure you've had challenges of... of having your intentions misjudged, maybe, because something looks a little too convenient for you, uh, for somebody who's looking at it through a political lens, when all you're trying to do is respond. Well, I, I'm sure that was probably right. <laughs> Without being self-justified, I would say in one of the uh, campaign pledges that I made as I was campaigning was, once again, to the people on the west side. And I mentioned that because our factory, Thomas O'Green Company, my grandfather had started out there. Uh, it was on the west side of Indianapolis. Um, and uh, so the, the people came and, and said, you know, in addition to our schools being dumped on, we're being dumped on. All the air pollution uh, just simply settles out here because every night uh, they just put a torch to all the refuse down in southwest Indianapolis and burn it up. And uh, so I, I pledged that we were going to close the first order of business, the uh, city dump. And, and get into a different mode. Well, uh, at this point, other Republican officials said, you just are overstepping altogether, including a couple of prominent judges, and uh, you're not going to be able to do that so fast. Uh, and it came, you know, to the, the very day that I was sworn in office, and um, the uh, car that the mayor had in those days uh, was given to me. It was an old Cadillac car. A policeman drove it out. My, my first act was to go down to the city dump and sort of a shovel of dirt indicated it was being closed. <laughs> yeah, it took a while, however, as a matter of fact, for that all to occur. 
And that was, that was true of, of many of these instances in which, by and large, there's a public good being served, but it's not immediately apparent to people. What also happened very tragically uh, is in the very first year, on April 4th, 1968, it was my birthday that day. This is my, we're just in office three months. And that was the day that Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. As some of you will recall, Robert Kennedy was campaigning in Indiana that day. Um, I had, had asked the Kennedy people not to come to downtown Indianapolis that night, which was their intent, because um, I said, this is going to be a very difficult, if not dangerous, situation. But they literally wanted to come to the heart of Indianapolis, down at 17th and Broadway that particular night, uh, to indicate the courage of the candidates and lots of other things. So it was one of these strange uh, uh, occasions in which, um, fortunately, I had uh, fashioned friendships <clears throat> with two people called Snooky Hendricks and Ben Bell. Now, these are what might be called activists. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, this occurred uh, because our campaign uh, was successful, but I noticed that all sorts of strange things had happened in some precincts. And uh, so Snooky and Ben said, well, let me tell you how, how politics goes. And I said, well, you tell me, Ben and Snooky. Took me down to 20th and College. And uh, they said, now, here, um, as a matter of fact, uh, you guys sent out Republican lawyers. <clears throat> and they were to be supervising the polls because there were no Republicans around there. But uh, very rapidly, why uh, Mayor Barton's brother, uh, Patrick, uh, took care of that situation by saying the civil rights were being violated. So the police department came out and picked up all of these young Republican attorneys who were horrified that their reputations were going to be burnished by all of this, took them down to, to the jail. Um, now, fortunately, the sheriff was Lee Eads, a Republican. So very rapidly, in the course of two or three hours, I got Lee uh, to release all of these Republicans. They didn't go back to the polls, however. Uh, and so Snooky and Ben were showing me the after effects of, of votes that were sort of like 120 to zero and so forth. And um, so I said, well, how did, how did this work out? I said, uh, it appears to me maybe there were more votes cast here than there are people living in this neighborhood. I said, not to worry. He said, we all knew how this elderly person or that one would have voted. We voted for them. <laughs> and uh, just sort of took care of that to, to make sure everybody was heard and so forth. Um, well, I was glad that we'd counted the votes already and that I was mayor, <laughs> listening to how all this was going to be handled. But uh, I mentioned all of this because on the night of April the 4th, uh, I was uh, in the, the uh, Murat Hotel for a banquet of the Shortreach High School basketball team, my uh, alma mater at Shortreach. Uh, it was uh, a team that was uh, all black, a black coach, and um, uh, there, there was a situation which we were celebrating that, uh, but I was also in the Murat Hotel because that's where the Kennedys were going to come. And I sort of had set up a battle command station it was not that far from 70th in Alabama or what have you, uh, to try to take care of the situation. <clears throat> in, in fairness, historically, and they couldn't have done it all, but Ben and Snooky were out there in the crowd uh, down there at 17th, 
And they um, were, in fact, counseling people, this is not the time, uh, and uh, made a very large difference as black activists that night, which saved lives in Indianapolis and all sorts of, of difficulty. You know, the next few days were horrible because um, people all, I was on, on one church basement and street corner, what happened after another. One of the television channels gave me five minutes every night just to reassure the people that we were going to be okay. Uh, but it was a very tense situation. Out in Richmond, Indiana, a refinery blew up, and the rumors were that uh, already the insurrection had occurred. Uh, but um, this was sort of a tough way to start the, the mayor business. But I, I stress the fact that in the campaign, because we had had these associations with these activists, uh, it, it was very, very important in the history of Indianapolis that, that uh, at the right time they step forward. You know, you, you mentioned that, that night, which is one of the most extraordinary, of course, in Indianapolis history, uh, as well as in American history. And uh, it's remarkable to hear the, the story behind the story and in, in the role that that uh, played in keeping the city calm, because I think most people know only the part about uh, Senator Kennedy's remarks, which was itself extraordinary. He yeah. got in front of uh, a room full of people. and without condescension, right? He, he was the one, he was the messenger. He wound up telling a lot of people, a lot of young activists, African-Americans mostly, that Dr. King had been killed. And he then did something that I think nobody would dare do today, um, but he did not condescend. He quoted uh, literature. He quoted Aeschylus, actually. Um, uh, there's this passage that begins that uh, God who's rule it is that he who learns must suffer. And he didn't quote that part, but he quoted a part where it says, uh, uh, and, and uh, even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the human heart. In our, in our own despite against our will comes wisdom by the awful grace of God. And connected with the audience, sharing that, uh, which had been a comfort to him when he was processing the death of his, his own brother, the violent death of his own brother a few years earlier. I happen to know that that was a translation uh, uh, from a book by Edith Hamilton called The Greek Way. And I know that because I stumbled on it during uh, uh, a little time I was reading in my office. Uh, about a year ago, I realized I wasn't reading anymore. And reading got me everything good in life. Uh, and I wasn't reading much. So we, we have a new rule that, that for not much, but four or five hours a week, uh, there's a requirement. My staff has to help me protect just four or five hours. Uh, when I can hold up and read, and not necessarily read about policy, maybe just read about the Greeks, <laughs> or, or read history, or read poetry, um, because if you don't do that, you, you can lose, I think, your mooring. Um, on the other hand, I've never felt so much pressure uh, away from study and, and scholarship, and it's a strange thing if you have a, a scholarly disposition to find yourself in, in a a job that seems almost to actively discourage, e either just through scheduling pressure, or also through the kind of uh, the culture you're immersed in, tends to discourage reflection uh, and, and reading and writing. Uh, and it brings me to, to something that, that I recall from uh, the, the opportunity that I had to visit your office in Washington, where uh, there's an entire wall uh, of books. It, it resembles the office of some of my, uh, uh, the professors I most admired, uh, and the kind of books that, that, that uh, I have or would like to have. Uh, so I, I'm interested to know whether you think it's become any less possible today 
to be a reflective practitioner for somebody who practices politics also to, to have a scholarly life uh, or indulge academic instincts, uh, or whether that's always been a challenge uh, and there's always going to be a way to somehow protect or, or enforce the, the importance of doing that for, for anybody who makes decisions and anybody who speaks to large numbers of people. Well, I think it's always been a challenge in public life, but you know, I sort of share your uh, passion for reading and uh, for study and uh, something that's been very important in my life, regardless of sort of which year you're in. I admire your discipline and actually setting aside time to do this. But I remember uh, at Oxford, um, for the first time in my life, I really had a block of time in which I could write a novel. Uh, and, and I did. Uh, it, was, it was never published. <laughs> I got uh, signs from publishers, a lot of promise and so forth, but no cigar, I think. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, I disposed of the novel. It probably was not a good idea. But, but still, I, I had met uh, Joyce Carey, Graham Greene, other luminaries over there, uh, because I was deeply interested in the creative arts of how you, how you write a novel. So ultimately, uh, I wrote another book called Letters to the Next President. And I did that after a very busy year in which uh, I was over supervising the election of Corazon Aquino over Ferdinand Marcos and all the aftermath of that, the problems of uh, uh, apartheid in South Africa, getting the majorities over President Reagan's veto that brought about really uh, a change in the relationship that we had there, and a host of other things. And from my standpoint, I wanted to write a book that said what I was thinking at the time, what the resources were, who said what to whom, and so forth, which has turned out to be very important because each of these are controversial events in the countries that were involved, quite apart from our own politics. But what a thrill it was to actually see my work published, to actually go to book signings. And uh, the thing I, I always am excited every quarter, a small royalty check comes in. <laughs> and uh, Char asked, why in the world are you still worried about that? I said, Char, you don't understand. That's, the, <laughs> that's, that's the, sort of the beauty of all of this. But, but I think that's important to take time. And I hope you will do that, too, as you're experiences unfold because uh, some recollection along the road, which is historically accurate, at least from your own point of view, uh, is very important in setting the argument for other historians or other people who may be writing about this sort of thing down the trail. I think one other fact, and seeing uh, Bill here just reminds me that right here at UND we had this remarkable program with the five mayors. And uh, that was a, a time in which we celebrated the fact that for 40 years there had been five mayors, and the flow of activity uh, of the work that each one had done was picked up and augmented by the next. In other words, as a situation uh, we heard today with regard to Republican politics or Indiana situation in Benjamin Harrison's day, but um, and this was not a question of the next mayor chucking it all out and saying, you know, my way or the highway. It was always a question of really building upon all of that. Bill picked up things and, and ran for four terms and had a, a huge impact. Um, but each of the words that were spoken by the mayors were complimentary of the one who had proceeded before or, or of the economy of the group. It was a, a beautiful 
time. And uh, I was so pleased that they replayed it during the time of the Super Bowl because for the rest of the country that was watching Indianapolis at that point, wondering how do you come to a point where Indianapolis would be selected for the Super Bowl? Uh, and this wasn't the total reason, but it was a, a city, a story of a city that showed how the, the whole sports business might have started from, from a very small beginning and moved national and international and, and finally led to that glorious time when we entertained the rest of America here. And uh, I cite the five mayor program that was brought to the fore right here at UND as a very important starter for all that. See Brandon toward the back with the microphone, so maybe we okay. could uh, take a little bit of time for questions yeah. from the group. After that ringing endorsement of the humanities, I thought it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that it would be a way to have this great opportunity to not allow great folks in the room to chime in with some questions, so. Uh, to both of you, it seems that on the municipal level, the partisanship that we're seeing really hurt our country today can be overcome. Um, you have to work with people that you know. Um, as two people who have accomplished that on the local level, and Senator Luger, you on the international level, uh, what kind of advice do you have for both citizens who are worried about what's going on in Washington, but also those policymakers that are that are have allowed partisanship and extreme ideology on both sides to to get us into the mess we're in today? I'll let Pete handle that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's certainly the case that in, in local government, you, you don't have the luxury of in, indulging or retreating into partisan camps nearly as, as much because stuff simply has to get done. Uh, we need a federal government, and the shutdown of the federal government is dreadful. But uh, if a city government shuts down, within about 48 hours, the uh, place would become uninhabitable because, among other things, we provide uh, drinking water. And if you don't have that, you can't live. So it doesn't get more basic than that. And there's a very perceptive op-ed piece uh, ran the uh, last couple of days by the mayor of Baltimore suggesting that if more of the people in Congress had had the experience of being in local government uh, or any executive experience, uh, there might be less willingness to let things reach this point. Uh, I'm certainly a fan of mayors. Uh, being uh, 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 being in Congress because there are people we can work with better. and uh, The same I might add for uh, the state legislature where I sometimes worry that uh, mayors and cities are being treated like just another interest group. Uh, and uh, we really count on the state to uh, uh, continue to have policies that benefit us and, and uh, would love to see more people with local government experience. Here I am talking about experience uh, at my age, but, uh, but I think it would be a real benefit at every level. I'd just like to pick that up because I think Pete's on to something very important here. Um, many of the members of Congress presently, uh, we heard some terrible tales about the 19th century this morning, but let's just talk about the current Congress. Uh, it came to the, uh, this, these responsibilities not because they had been mayors or governors or attorney general or had had any particular responsibility. Um, they are, are persons who have very strong views about various subjects, but um, they've come to a, a Congress, and I can just say from my own experience in the last 10 years, uh, we've not moved long before this year very many appropriation bills, that is the spending bills. They've hardly ever passed a budget. Uh, we 
this is not new. It may be one of the worst examples. Uh, and, and I would say, in large part, it's because the people involved do not have really legislative experience or experience really in dealing with other people. If, if you take the situation my way or the highway and you say, I'm, I'm a member of Congress, but I hate Washington. I don't want to spend any more hours here than I have to. Three days a week is about it for me uh, because I want to be back on the hustings with the people. These are the people I'm interested in. Well, that's fine. But uh, in terms of actually physically doing the work, uh, not so fine because uh, nobody is there. Or if the House decides that they have in the last two years to take a whole week off every, out of every four, it is arbitrarily so they can be back on the hustings and so forth. Um, you, you finally get to a situation in which uh, people, first of all, don't know each other. They don't ever see each other because they're back and on the hustings. They're not, and so this, this has implications. Uh, for instance, in the Foreign Relations Committee, in which I was deeply interested, or the Ag Committee with the Farm Bill, very, very difficult to move anything uh, in either situation. And, and finally, I would just say that, frankly, that to many people with whom I visited, in, say, in the last five years uh, in Indiana frequently, quite apart from the rest of the nations, so I won't categorize that, I would go out to a, a, a town hall meeting or some other meeting, and they respectfully would say, now, Dick, we appreciate the work you've done in getting all those warheads that were aimed at us uh, and taking care of the world and so forth. But we're not interested in that anymore. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. We're interested in budgets, in taxes, uh, in jobs. That's what we want to talk about. That's all we want to talk about. Well, uh, somebody still has to talk about the rest of the world occasionally. And um, it's very difficult. Uh, people will criticize the president for lacking congressional support and so forth. But the fact is, if nobody is studying, nobody is reading, <laughs> nobody is doing anything about this, uh, we're really talking about a federal government that um, may have some talented people, but they're not prepared really for this particular thing. Now, I think this may change over the course of time. I'm always optimistic these are cycles we go through. Having heard about the other centuries today, why it was even worse still, I suppose, on other occasions. But we're in a very complicated world in which we have large responsibilities, and we, we need people. And I just make a final point, and that is, that I used to worry as I went around Indiana, it's not to berate anybody who's been serving in public office, but I would talk to people who were gifted attorneys, doctors, um, civic leaders, and they would be prepared really to be a part of a committee that would raise money for my campaign, or, or, but not to put their own names on the ballot, not to put their own necks in the noose. Uh, so that and finally, after you eliminate several rafts of very talented people in this state, uh, what is left finally on the ballot sometimes uh, is not exactly what you would want. Uh, and so you ask of some of these people, okay, don't make your whole life of it, but you know, maybe you might really run for the school board someday or, or uh, for the city council or something of that variety, disagreeable as that may seem, you don't have to make a lifetime of it, but at least put your own neck in, out there. And, uh, uh, but I don't get many buyers for that. And I, I hope that there will be many more. Hello, just uh, wanted to uh, 
for you to think about this for a little bit and reply to it. Uh, we know we all went through the recession and it's not been a good thing, but yet we're looking at a comeback of some sorts. And if you come right here to the state of Indiana and look all around at the other states surrounding us, we seem like we're number one. We're number one in getting new business, in taxes, in budget, and in the fact that we're not in debt over our head. Why do you think that we are shining so brightly, if indeed we are shining brightly? Um, uh, well, certainly you're appealing to my Indiana pride on one level. So I think there's, uh, you know, I think there's a, a discipline that, that uh, our state has had and, and that our government has had that's been beneficial. Uh, I think uh, it's something we try to do at the local level too. We're very proud uh, that we have the best bond rating of any class two city. Uh, in Indiana. It's not the flashiest thing to talk about, your bond rating, but, uh, but it really matters uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but let's not lull ourselves, I think, into a sense of complacency at the same time. Uh, we're doing well by a lot of measures of uh, some fiscal measures and also measures of how we're regarded in the near term by business decision makers. But in the medium to long term, I think business decision makers will uh, evaluate communities and states based on uh, certainly fiscal strength, uh, but two other big things, education and infrastructure. And in those two respects, I'm not comfortable with uh, where we are in Indiana uh, and, uh, for that matter, not comfortable with where we are in South Bend, which is why we've all, all got to work so hard to find uh, more solutions. The, the good news is, uh, for somebody who's passionate about the local level, uh, especially as federal government creaks into uh, dysfunction, we hope temporarily, um, uh, a lot of the most interesting innovation uh, when it comes to infrastructure uh, and education uh, can happen at the local level, um, but not without uh, some level heads in Washington as well. I would just pick up the education part especially. Um, many of the surveys now do not put Indiana at the top of the list with regard to the public school system. As a matter of fact, way down the list. Um, Likewise, with regard to the so-called STEM skills, uh, those are not the whole thing, and there are big arguments as to whether mathematics and engineering are more important than philosophy and so forth, and I'll not get into that. I, well, Pete and I were philosophy types, <laughs> but uh, in any event, uh, I think Ivy Tech, in its extension, is trying very hard to so-called bridge the gap between the jobs that are possible and available in very wonderful in, uh, industries and the lack of the skills of people regardless of age who are not really able to meet those. And this is a big gap in Indiana. Uh, I think many are trying to address it, but uh, we had you know, discussions this morning about the public school system. And uh, from a sentimental standpoint, this is very important for me because I remember so well all the struggles that were involved in this, but this has not gone well. It's not going well at all for the children who were involved or their parents, or really, I think, for the heart of the city. And it's something that really has to be addressed. I think we got one more question over here. Hello. Um, I know that there are many students here, along uh, with myself, that are seeking careers um, in politics. And um, I just have a question for both of you. Um, are there certain aspects of human character 
human character that um, one needs to possess to uh, succeed in their um, field? Or um, do you have any advice to um, the students here in the audience? Well, I will start out with saying I, I heard Francis Mayor um, McBarnes this morning. Um, uh, he did not dwell on this, but he really pointed out the strength of his faith in God and the fact that um, he is guided by this. Uh, I think that is very important. I don't want to uh, go into a sermon today, but I would say that uh, the fact is that uh, I think someone who is going to be a successful public servant really has to start with prayer and asking what is expected of me and, and how should I conduct myself and uh, how can I make a difference in this life, however many years I'm given. Um, and that, I think, is pretty fundamental. Now, af after that, you may come to the conclusion this is going to require a great deal of work on your part. It's going to require that from the beginning you were a good student, uh, maybe a good Boy Scout if you're a male, uh, a, a good person in terms of going to church services and taking part uh, in Sunday school and, in my case, Methodist Youth Fellowship and all of this. Um, and, and finally, of course, uh, having the, the ability to learn new skills, uh, to understand that the world moves on whether you have or not, and that there are other people who are going to require, really, that somebody study a little bit ahead of the situation if, in fact, the challenges are going to be met. These, these I think, are very important aspects of people looking at public service. And I'm always excited uh, visiting with the interns that we've had in the Senate office and now uh, this wonderful program that UND has created out, out of our Luger Center in Washington. We, the first year, we have 10 students from UND. Um, these are all students who uh, would ask the same question you have asked. What do we do? How, how do you prepare for this? And, and we're helping the preparation through matching up with other members of Congress in their offices. A, a gifted professor from Georgetown who comes in twice a week for extended lectures. And, and a, a good number of tours that uh, Connor Burns and my staff, who's sitting next to you, uh, takes around Washington with the students. They were out in Mount Vernon this week, for example. And um, it's, it's an attempt, however, to, really to think aloud, as I do with the students. Uh, uh, each week for a couple of hours about where we all are headed and what it, what it will take. What a, what a deep question. Uh, human character uh, is, uh, first of all, it points to the importance of being a student. So for all the experiences I've had that prepared me to do what I do now, from uh, uh, campaigns to time in the business community to, uh, uh, to even military service, nothing was as important in my formation as the time, of course, that I spent as a student. So I hope it's recognized among students what an important moment you have on your hands right now. The only time in your life when it will be your full-time job, or at least your primary job, mm -hmm. to find out as much as you can about yourself and about the world that you operate in. Uh, that is incredible. It's, 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 a, it's a great racket <laughs> that, uh, that we've managed to organize through the university, which may be the greatest invention of mankind. Uh, we've managed to organize opportunities to do that. Uh, because then you'll be able to formulate your purpose, which 
may or may not be formulated in terms of a job title you'd like to have. I tend to think that that is secondary, but purpose in the sense of what you aim to do. So that whatever job title you get, you know what to use it for. And, and that's where character is so important. And that, by the way, and I'm not just pandering, is why humanities is so important, right? So I think the senator and I both studied, uh, I mean, I did history and literature for my first degree, philosophy, politics, and economics for my second. Just about the only thing I didn't study was policy and how to be a mayor and any of that stuff. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you, you use the word character, which is a great word, tired word, because people use it and wear it out uh, in, in some cliches. But it's important because there, there's two kinds of challenges that any, I think, leader winds up dealing with. And one is what you might call technical challenges. They're, they're problems that have a right answer. They're, they're things that if you could just figure out how to do something a little more efficiently, a little more cleverly, a little more quickly, a little more cheaply, you've made progress. And, uh, and by the way, leaders who are exceptionally good at that is one reason that Indianapolis uh, and, and Indiana more generally has been in such good shape in the last half century. Um, but that's table stakes. Uh, it's hard, don't get me wrong, but that's the beginning. The real tricky part is the challenge that comes to any leader to deal with uh, decisions where there's no amount of uh, technical work is gonna tell you the right answer because there's no technical right answer. You can't solve the puzzle. It's not math. Uh, the only thing you can do is make a choice between two alternatives that pit valid values against each other. Uh, situations where you can make one person or group better off, but not without making another person or group worse off. And how you handle those, how you handle those situations that put your values into conflict uh, is the very stuff of character. And you will have no better chance in your life to form and inform that character than the time you're spending right now as students, hopefully reading novels and history and philosophy as well as whatever your chosen field of study might be. Much as we'd all like to stay here all day, at least I know I would, we, we have reached the time where we need to depart. And I hope that you all will join us in the Schwitzer Center atrium right around the corner for our special announcement involving the mayoral archives, which is really going to be exciting. And we're glad to have Senator Luger, Mayor Hudnut, Dave Frick here to help with that. Thank you all. It's been a very, very exciting day, exciting last night. Great programming. We're just thrilled that the inaugural Richard M. Fairbanks Symposium got off to such a great start. Thanks from young gun mayors to the historians to our deputy mayors and of course this just unforgettable conversation here that we just were fortunate to be a part of. Finally also thank you to Indiana Humanities, our partner in this incredible endeavor over the last two days. Kira staff went out of their way and the entire UND community from students people setting up lunch and having to do things at the last second. It was, it was an incredible effort. Thank you all so very much. And we look forward to seeing you back here next year for our second Fairbanks Symposium. Won't you join us now around the corner and give one last round of applause, please. This podcast was produced by the Institute for Civic Leadership and Mayoral Archives in the Department of Communication at the University of Indianapolis. It is made possible by the support of the Richard M. Fairbanks Foundation, Indiana Humanities, and the Lilly Endowment. For more information, please see our website, uindy.edu backslash mayoral.